let's continue our sermon series. Uh, very apropos, we're looking at uh, God as our Father. And so I continue to preach sermons on the fatherhood of God, and we're going to be looking at one right now. Uh, and this is Romans 8, 14 through 17, and Romans 8, 23 through 24. It can be found in your bulletin. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and of children than heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And this is Romans 8, 23 through 24. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? The word of the Lord. Well, as we've seriously gone multimedia during this particular service and we have people watching on Facebook, I thought we needed to really, you know, bring in some more video and some more excitement. And so I convinced my wife to release one of, uh, of our birthing videos to go ahead and watch. Uh, I, don't, I don't think we actually have birthing videos. I certainly hope not. But nonetheless, it's good grist for the mill. If you have a birthing video, congratulations. They're uh, very exciting, you know, uh, uh, watching a birth. It's interesting how things have changed in terms of how children are born, at least from the man's perspective. You know, it wasn't too long ago that they were in the waiting room, uh, waiting to pass out cigars to hear from the, uh, you know, the physician who'd come in and say, it's a boy or it's a girl, uh, you know, to now where it's uh, encouraged, in fact, even required uh, to be in the, uh, in the delivery room with the mother. Uh, I have been in um, uh, uh, part of the birth of our three kids. I uh, actually cut, I think, the umbilical cord for at least one of them. Uh, I've been in therapy uh, since that, uh, but feel like I'm growing uh, in that area. Uh, but it, it is amazing uh, when that child comes out. And there is a pregnant pause as everyone is waiting to hear that first cry. And why that first cry is important is what it's doing is the baby is clearing its lungs uh, and taking in that first breath of oxygen, if you will. And so there's a, there's a primal cry, if you will, to the child as it needs to have it. It must have, as it's separated from its mother, that first oxygen uh, to be able to live. Uh, we have a physical cry in our hearts for oxygen uh, if you don't believe that, let me just cut it off for a second and see how you respond. But in addition to the physical cry we have for life-giving oxygen, there is a cry of our heart as well. It's a cry not for oxygen, but it's a cry for love. And I want to suggest to you that it's a cry for a specific love. There are many loves that, that uh, give uh, joy to our heart, but there's only one love which can truly satiate and satisfy like oxygen, and that is the love of our Heavenly Father. And much like a baby, we will search for it all of our lives until we find it. 
We will accept poor substitutes if we have to, but we have to have the love of someone we call our Father in a spiritual sense. The beauty of the gospel is that the longing of our hearts has been made possible. That through the Spirit we can cry out, much like a child, Abba, Father, when we speak of God. We can have Him as that in our lives. You see, the cry of our heart is for our Heavenly Father. And as such, let us not be satisfied with anything less than Him, for nothing else will do. I want to speak about this in the passage, and I want to look at three specific points to help unpack this. Number one, our need for a father, our spiritual need and hunger for a father. Number two, how the Spirit brings us the Father. And then finally, number three, how are we to live as children of the Father? Because the cry of our heart is for our Heavenly Father. So let us not be satisfied with anything less. Let's look at first my first point, our need for a father. Romans 8.14 says that for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Now, this led by the Spirit of God, often we think of it as prescriptive, but it's descriptive. It's, it's showing the reality of if you have the Spirit of God, you are sons of God. Now, many of us say, well, there are times when I most certainly am not following the Spirit of God. But the reality is this passage in much of Romans 8, which is descriptive rather than prescriptive of the Christian, is about him and what he's doing in our lives, in the midst of our obedience and our disobedience. See, when God comes into our life, when we profess faith in Jesus Christ and choose to follow him, his spirit comes into our life and he begins to steer us. He steers our life. In the midst of us sometimes kicking and screaming, he's constantly bringing us back to him. We can't get away from him. Much like a parent and a little child. There are many times when a little child rebels against a parent kicking and screaming. And yet the parent holds sway and continues to, to lead. The parent does not become the parent because the child is disobedient. Because the parent is leading the child. That's what this passage is saying. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. So to be a Christian is to be led by the Spirit of God and to be a son of God. And when you think about it, what title is higher that you can have in this earthly life than this one? I mean, think about it. Would I rather be the CEO of Google or a son of God? Well, at the beginning you go, of course, CEO of Google, and then you stop and think about it. The God of the universe, the one that we sang about, the one that more ink has been spilled, more blood has been shed for in terms of martyrdom, people dying for their faith. Is there any greater title than being a son of God? Sonship has always been God's plan. And I want to take a second here. Is this title of calling us sons, is, this, is the Bible being misogynistic here? And the answer is no. It's using an, an illustration, an analogy that is male, and sometimes the Bible uses illustrations that are 
female. For instance, the church is the bride of Christ. Well, I'm a male and I'm part of the church and yet I'm part of the bride of Christ. Now, it's not an illustration in the sense that we are really our children of God, sons and daughters of God. But he's using sonship here because the son is the heir. That whether you are male or female, you are a child of God and an heir of God. It's using, we have to understand the context in which it's being used. And as we look through the Bible, we clearly see that sonship has always been the plan of redemption for God. Think of Luke and the long genealogy from Luke as it goes all the way through all the generations, all the way back to Adam, and refers to Adam in an amazing way as the Son of God. And as Adam and Eve are cast out of the garden, as they lose their birthright, we see that God has his plan of redemption that unfolds throughout the Bible. He takes a people to himself, Israel. And in that beautiful passage when the, uh, when the Israelites are in Egypt in slavery, Paul inst uh, God instructs uh, Moses to go to Pharaoh and say, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go. The people of God are the child of God. There's the prophecy in Hosea 1 through 10, in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people. They will be called the sons of the living God. And as we continue on all the way into the New Testament, John 1.12, for all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, not of physical means or decision or a husband's will, but of God. Sonship has always been God's plan, as sonship has always been part of man's design. See, there's a reason that when we're born, A, it takes a mother and a father, but it's critical in terms of for the health of the child, and the stats have proved this again and again, the need for a father and a mother in a child's life. I've had the privilege and am continuing to doing so to raise four children. And there are some things that a mother can teach, and there's some things that only a father can teach. That's why marriage is designed to be between, between a, mother and, a mother and a father, because they're needed for children. I talked about this illustration before that uh, they demonstrated that uh, even in prison, uh, uh, the inmates, many of them still have decent relationships with their mothers, but almost to a T, none of them have a relationship, a good relationship, or even an existing relationship with their father. It's built not only into our spiritual DNA for a heavenly father, but into our physical DNA. I talk to people uh, who want to know God as Father, but say to me, it's hard for me to know God as, uh, as Father because I didn't have a good Father. But even in saying that, they reveal that they know in their heart of hearts what a good Father should be. Because imprinted into the DNA of our heart is our need for a spiritual Heavenly Father. Not just any Father, but God Himself. If you had a good father, if you didn't have a, a father at all, it's important again that you understand that a heavenly father, our heavenly father, is a perfection of our earthly father, not just a reflection of our earthly father. And because we were designed in our heart of hearts to have a heavenly father, 
we must and will choose a father, a spiritual father in this life. Hear these words from Jeremiah that demonstrate this. And this is where God is reproving the Israelites for going after other idols. They've run away from God. And God, through the prophet Jeremiah, says, How can you say, meaning Israelite people, and saying, I am not unclean, I have not gone after the Baals, which are the, the idols of, of their location. Look at your way in the valley. Know what you have done, a restless young camel running here and there, who say to a tree, you are my father, and to a stone, you gave me birth. In other words, you know what idols are? They're the fathers that we put in our life. They're the spiritual things we assign as our father. The things that we look to to provide us a name, to provide us an inheritance, to provide us a protection and care. We must have that from someone or something. So if it's not our heavenly father, it'll be a rock or a stone or a bank account, or a job, or a woman, or a man. It's the idols. And whatever we give ourselves to, I remember hearing this as a teenager. Someone said, everybody has a God, and every God has a price. I don't know if you remember that classic movie, uh, Star Wars. I think this was actually number two, maybe, Empire Strikes Back. Luke Skywalker, who is orphaned, or, or so he thinks. And all his life, he's been looking uh, for someone to give him significance and validation. And he's been trained and he goes up against Darth Vader. And uh, I, I won't even try to do an imitation of uh, good Darth, but he, he says the comment that you are my son and I am your father. And what does it do to Luke? It crushes him. It breaks his soul because the one who he's looking to for validation all his life is a cruel taskmaster who actually has a lightsaber and just cut off his hand. See, all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. So who is your father? Whoever is your master. Whoever I have to have, that's your father. Whoever you give your heart to and say, you will protect me. You will give me a name. If you want to know who your master is, you'll know not when you have it, but when somebody takes it away. Four people are drinking wine. One's an alcoholic. You take away the wine from these four people, and it'll illustrate and demonstrate to you who is the alcoholic. See, we all have a God that we make our father. Whether it's an idol that cannot speak or it's the one true God of the universe. So what are you relying on to complete me? Is it my job? Is it the approval of the community around me? Is it my spouse that I look to for validation? All of those things can be good things. But when they become ultimate things, they become very bad things. We have to have a father. We're built for it. And it will either make us or break us. This brings me to my second point, how the Spirit brings me a father. 
Romans 8.15 says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. God is showing that the spirit that I've given you is not one of slavery. See, the spirit that we had before, the spirit that you may have now, if you are not a believer, is not the spirit of the Father, but a spirit of slavery. In fact, I think he's, he's pointing to the evil one, Satan, who, has, uh, who, who basically has deceived you into choosing other idols. And these idols constantly exploit you. You're a slave to them. Whether it's the bottle or it's a person or it's you name it and put in its place. You have to have it, but it doesn't set you free. It only constrains you more and more. And this spirit of slavery, what it does is put you back into fear. He's, he's preaching, Paul is preaching to the Christians to remind them of who they are. You have not received a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Remember, that's how you were before, Christian. And then there was no one to care for you. There was no one to root for you. There was no one to fight for you. The fathers that you gave your heart to only took and took and took. But rather, you have received a spirit of adoption as sons. You've been adopted into the family of Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit. You have been given a birthright, if you will, through Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, who lived a perfect life, who got up on a cross and died so that His blood and His sacrifice would be imputed to your account, so that when God looked at you, He would see the record of Jesus Christ, and He would account you worthy to be adopted into His family. That's the spirit you receive, a spirit of adoption. And the spirit of adoption does several things in your life. The first thing it does is it seals you. It seals you. It puts a seal over your heart and your life, saying, this is mine. This is Ephesians 1.13, speaking of the Christian. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. The Spirit comes into our heart and seals us and says, this is a child of God. And then it continues on and teaches us and leads us in our sonship. See, if you've ever watched the movies on, on, on adoption, you know, I remember the Annie and, uh, you know, it's, it's all wonderful. The child comes in and is adopted and all of a sudden you click your fingers and voila, the child sees uh, you know, the mom and dad is mom and dad. Just like that. But it doesn't, it doesn't work like that at all. Having adopted a child, we know this. In the beginning, the child doesn't understand it. Can't fathom it. Because the mother and father, either that it had before, the quasi-mother and father, were abusive. Or there was no mother and father at all. They don't understand it. But you see, the beauty of whether my child, when she was adopted, understands it or not, doesn't change the reality of what has happened and who they are. Rather, the way that that child learns is the mother and father 
playing the role of parent day in, day out. I remember this with Maria, our daughter, as we went through this process. And in the beginning, she couldn't fathom such a thing. But slowly, as we treated her as our daughter, for that's who she was, through this process of osmosis, two steps forward, one step back, and we're still on that journey. It was only a matter of time before what came out of her mouth, mommy and daddy, she really believed. That's what the spirit is doing, the spirit of adoption that not only seals us, but teaches us. See, it's the spirit of adoption by whom we cry, Abba, Father. It's something uh, that he's enabling us and teaching us to do. And this spirit of adoption is something, notice, it says that we have received. It's not something that you earned. It's not something that you obtained. It wouldn't be the love of a father if it was something that we earned, would it? The love of a father must freely be given with no compulsion or compunction. Has to be. And so through the Holy Spirit, much as my children gave that first cry in the operating room, we can cry through our second birth coming forth from our spiritual room, Abba, womb, Abba, Father. Abba, which means dad. Romans 8.16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. You have someone who is living inside of you. The Spirit of God, which is referred interchangeably as the Spirit of Christ or Christ himself. God the Father is in heaven with the Son, Jesus Christ. And yet they're dwelling in us through this Holy Spirit that is bearing witness in the same way when our daughter or our children come to us and say, are you my mom and dad? Yes, of course. Maria has, is doing something very interesting. She comes and she compares her skin to mine. Does our skin look the same? And the answer is, of, yes, we do. Well, the reason we do is because we both have the same ethnic heritage, but it's important for her to know that I have some connection, if you will, with you. Would she ever come to me and say something like that? And I'd say, no, absolutely not. Because I understand the question behind the question. And the Spirit understands what we need. He understands when we come. Am I really yours, Father? Do you really care about me? Do you really root for me? Is my skin really like yours? Yes, child, it is. God wants to be your Father and mine. And He has sent the Spirit to come alongside us, to teach us how to live. He's given all of himself for us. And so shall we not bring him all of ourselves? I don't know if you remember this little booklet. I haven't seen it for a while, but it, it, it was titled, My Heart, Christ's Home. 
Great little book, Robert Lloyd Munger, I think was his name. And it's, a, it's an illustration, a parable of when God comes to live in uh, the believer's life. And he compares it to a home. That God comes to take up residence. And he begins doing things in the home, making it ship-shape, if you will. Invading all the different areas. But at some point, God comes to a door and it's locked. And God says, what's in that door? Oh, you, Jesus, you don't want to go in that door. There's, that's, there, there's nothing in that door. No, what's in that door? Oh, you would be ashamed if you went into that door and you would see. That, that's my space. That's just me. And, and, and I really don't want you to be a part of that. And you know what the Father will do? He'll just sit down right next to that door. Because a good father wants to be in every single aspect of your life, to bring care and comfort and life into it. The reality is so often, even though I know he's my father, I have areas of my life that I wall off away from him because I fear that he won't be a father to me in that. And so the encouragement we have, since we have the spirit who's in our hearts, is we can say to God the Father, God, I need you to be a father to me in my divorce. I need you to be a father to me in my abuse. I need you to be a father to me in my disappointment and my unmet expectations. The reality is he already knows what's behind the door anyways, doesn't he? He's a good father. This isn't some abstract mechanism that God has put in our place, in, in our lives and our hearts, so that we would know abstractly that He is our Father, but rather that we would live in intimate sonship with Him in every aspect of our life. So open up the doors. That's why He's there. The Spirit has come to bring us all of the Father. So shall we not bring Him all of ourselves? This brings me to my final point. Living as sons of the Father. The scriptures here tell us that if we are children, in verse 17, then we're heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs of Christ, provided we suffer with Him, in order that we also may be glorified with Him. Because we are His children, we have an inheritance. We have a certain future. We have certain riches that we can be looking forward to. The kingdom of God. You know, in this time of uncertainty, where everything seems up in the air, and it will get worse before it gets better, we can have confidence because our citizenship is in heaven. And we await a Savior from there, Jesus Christ, who comes to bring us to the Father. The Bible tells us that no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has in store for those who love Him. We are heirs with Christ and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we also may be glorified with Him. What does that mean, provided that we suffer with Him? Well, certainly there are those in the past who have suffered martyrdom and 
but I haven't had that opportunity yet. I may never. Does that mean that I'm not actually uh, a, a, an heir? And the answer, of course, is no. What he's talking about is the suffering that comes with faith. See, whenever you choose one thing, you have to unchoose another. I added that passage at the very end that not only creation be, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit wait eagerly as we groan for our redemption, or groan uh, for our, the redemption of our bodies. There is a battle of faith to believe, to not listen to the world and the evil one and even our flesh which rails against any dependence on a father. Because the root of sin is pride, is it not? I don't need you. I don't want you. I want this and this and this. There's a suffering every time when we choose to follow Jesus Christ, to turn away from idols, and to turn to the one true God, even though He is the true God. Because we're fighting against our fallenness, and we're fighting against the world. And we're saying, you are my heavenly Father. And Jesus Christ is the perfect example. So how do we live as sons in this day and age? How do we not fall away? Let me give you three specific ideas to think about. Number one, view sin as personal. If he sees us as personal, shouldn't we see him as personal? Because he sees us as a father sees us, we can delight him in ways by how we choose to live and what we choose to do. He's always delighted in us because of the perfection of Jesus Christ. He's always proud of us. But when we sin, we grieve the heart of God, but not in the way that you think, not in the way that our sin grieves his heart because our sin has already been paid for. We grieve his heart as a father because he wants us to experience all the blessings and all the benefits that come with being a child of God. We worry over our children all the time. But we never think in terms of their actions or, uh, you know, in terms of how could they do that. Well, that's not true. We may think that sometimes. We're fallen. We're not like the Heavenly Father who's the perfect. But we never think of disowning them. We, what we think about more than anything is we want the best for them, right? When my child is going in a path and in a way that they shouldn't be going, it grieves our heart because we want the best for them. And when they're choosing to walk out their sonship and what they know to be true, it brings us joy and heart's delight. For them, we joy in them. God thinks the exact same way. See our actions as personal. Like a child who, when they do something, look at their parent and, see, and say, see, see what I did? And when they're hurt, they come to us for care. And when they sin, they come to us with sorrow. View sin is personal. Number two, remember what he's done for me. Remember that I was a child of slavery. 
I was a child of fear, that I had no one to root for me and care for me, that I had no inheritance. Remember Jesus on the cross, who stood in the gap for me, who was forsaken, who was abandoned, that I might be adopted. Remember who he is for us. Finally, number three, let him be your father. Down to the very essence of what it means as a child. Sharing with him your joys, sharing with him your hopes, sharing with him your hurts. I don't know how to be a child of God. I got news for you. The Spirit does. And he's in you. And he's the spirit of adoption. And he comes along your side, your spirit, to help us cry out, Abba, Father. In conclusion, the cry of our heart is for our Heavenly Father. We'll never be satisfied with anything else. If you have not yet given your heart to Jesus Christ and trusted in him, perhaps it's time to run to the Father to fall into his arms, to get rid of those other idols that only bring death, that you might have life in Christ's name. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you that when we were lost, when we had no one to cheer for us, no one to run to when we were hurt, only cold idols that gave death and not life. That you sent your son Jesus Christ to die on a cross. That we, that he might send the Holy Spirit into our lives. That we might be adopted as your children. God, I pray in these circumstances more than ever that the reality of who you are, our Heavenly Father, would be in our hearts. And that we would lean on you like we've never leaned before. And we pray all of these things in Christ's name. Amen.